This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Sayaka Chitani, assistant professor in the Department of History at the National University of Singapore. Dr. Chitani is the author of Nation Empire, Ideology and Rural Youth Mobilization in Japan and its Colonies, forthcoming from Cornell University Press in December 2018. Dr. Chitani, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. You have this book forthcoming, Nation Empire, looking at youth mobilization across Japan's imperial domains, looking at Taiwan and Korea and, yeah. and rural Japan as well. Yeah. So can you talk about this project and, and also talk about whether or not or how the Meiji Restoration plays a role? Sure. My book starts with a question why so many young men in the Japanese colonies, Taiwan and Korea in particular, showed enthusiastic support for the empire during World War II. One shocking phenomenon that really puzzled me was the colonial volunteer soldier program. And obviously it started uh, after the Second Sino-Japanese War. But to this program, hundreds of thousands of youth applied each year. So the numbers we have for this program are compiled by colonial officials. So obviously there were a number of cases of coercion or deception, but in the majority of personal accounts or memoirs written later, it is clear that the volunteer soldier was very, very popular. So expanding on that question, I wanted to investigate why on earth anyone, whether in the metropole or the colonies, would be willing to risk their lives and fight for the empire. And it is not news that they were mainly young people in the countryside that became the major support base for the army. So in this book, I go back to the late 19th century and trace the processes of assimilation and colonization and youth mobilization in four different villages in Miyagi, Okinawa, Taiwan, and Korea. What I really wanted to do is not really a history of mobilization by the state, but a history of social relationships and local dynamics that determine the meanings of youth programs from the viewpoints of participants. So the major restoration, the major restoration is tremendously important for experiences of village youth across the empire. First of all, Most obviously, new institutions were set up, such as the elementary school, the family registration, conscription, or the Senendan, the Village Youth Association, which I focus on in my book. And these new institutions had prehistory, obviously, from the pre-Meiji period, but the new facade or the new institutions affected young people's lifestyles and labor relationships and their consciousness as well. Second of all, the Meiji Restoration itself became important as a discursive symbol within the modern youth discourse. In the 1880s, Tokutomi Soho and his famous journal, The Nation's Friend, or Kokumi no Tomo, established the category of youth or the importance of youth in nation building. And in this journal, he also said that the Meiji Restoration was an achievement of modern youth So that youth discourse and the image of the Meiji Restoration were widely shared outside Japan as well. And even anti-colonial intellectuals 
from Taiwan and Korea use this image to show that it is the young generation's responsibility to, to expel imperial forces and build their own nations. You mentioned that the soldiers who are fighting in the war are coming from the rural countryside and yeah. there's strong support for the army in the rural countryside in Japan, but also in Taiwan and Korea. Yeah. And I'm going to ask about those colonial settings later. But for now, wh- why is it that there's so much support for the army coming from the countryside? Well, the conventional understanding, which I challenged in my book, was that they were basically backward. They didn't critically uh, challenge their authorities. So they, they were feudalistic a mentality made them obedient to the authorities. But in my book, I discovered these young people were much more subversive and rebellious, and they used the Japanese discourse of rural superiority or agrarianism to challenge the establishment, be it the family organization or the wealthy in the village or the older generation in the village. So there there were a lot of complicated social relationships and feelings of grudge and jealousy and other emotions that created this social mechanism within the rural sphere. And there is some kind of mobilization campaigns that the state is able to do, the, the conscription edict in 1872, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. and the starting of this conscript military. And there is that kind of resistance to that as well, right? Yeah, the conscription yeah, yeah. riots from the 1870s. But then later, most of the soldiers do come from the countryside. So can you talk about some of those campaigns and then the reaction on the local level to them? Yes. So yes, as you said, there was a lot of resistance against the conscription system. But one catalyst was the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, or the victory in it. And that really changed the hegemony of the Japanese military. And the Japanese army represented the new force within the rural sphere. So that really changed the popularity of the conscription exam. Now, the conscription exam became a part of young people's life ritual in the countryside. Uh, So before the conscription exam, age 20 meant nothing to them. But after the conscription system, age 20 became the start of their adulthood. And that's the end of their membership in the Seinendan. So the Seinendan used to be more of a village organization for farming and labor relationships. But now after the Meiji restoration of the Meiji, Meiji's new institutions, the Seinendan was now understood as training for conscription exam. So the Russo-Japanese War was the first catalyst and World War I was another catalyst because the Japanese army ministry, especially Tanaka Gichi, toured around Europe during World War I, and he realized that youth mobilization is the key for the new era's mass mobilization. So he basically lobbied a lot in the Japanese government to establish a nationalized seinendan, and that created a new wave of seinendan institutions across the empire. That's 1915. So that was another catalyst. And obviously in the 1920s was a much more rebellious period from the perspective of state officials. Young people were polarized between the left and the right and they fought each other. But anyhow, under Taisho democracy, the discourse of modern youth really grew and 
even in the countryside, young people discovered new political leverage. So they really decided to self-mobilize and they asserted the usefulness to fight the establishment. And in the 1930s, as you know, the total empire starts. So migration to Manchukuo became popular in the countryside and that really fanned the rural imperialism and that continued into World War II. And then in the 1930s as well, the Great Depression has a major impact on the rural countryside. Yeah, exactly. There's also the kind of anti-imperialism after World War One, where during the Taisha democracy, there was even an attempt to downsize the military yeah. and, and disband whole units and everything. Yeah. And so the army kind of reacts to this, right, and, and kind of goes out in the countryside trying to get more support. Yes. So the army had to deal with two social demands. One is to diminish the army's influence over society. And the second is to prepare the masses for upcoming, maybe a war. So in order to do that, the youth organizations in villages were extremely useful to them. They could hide the influence of army in the name of emperor's nationalism, emperor-centered nationalism. So at the same time, within the Senendan, the army could start military drill and prepare young villagers for the upcoming conscription and military service. So if we could pivot and, and talk about the colonies, uh, you pointed out you know, it does seem somewhat counterintuitive that you would get so many colonial subjects in places like Taiwan and Korea volunteering to join the military. Yeah. So what explains it? You mentioned that there is this kind of rural continuity there. Is, is that what it is? It's the kind of rural support for the army, no matter where you are in the empire? I would say there is a similar pattern in the rural countryside because there were a lot of tensions between rural and urban spheres. And there was a big sense of rivalry against urban intellectuals. So when I talked to the former model rural youth, people who were mobilized under the Senendan or other youth mobilization scheme, they seemed to emphasize that they were achieving something. They were achieving themselves through the Japanese youth training. And what they really aspired to was not necessarily to serve the empire, but to become model rural youth. And they envisioned the ideal world of agrarianism and youthful leadership within it. So what they imagined was a little different from what the Japanese empire was trying to achieve. But nonetheless, there was a huge overlap in their interest to achieve mass mobilization in the countryside. Was there a sense that you saw of through fighting for the empire, this might be a way to gain more personal rights for Koreans or Taiwanese at the same time? Well, that's the thing. They were trying to achieve something by becoming the volunteer soldier, but they were not trying to gain personal rights against the empire, but they were rather fighting in social battles against, for example, intellectuals in Taipei or Seoul 
or those who could go into a colonial bureaucracy, because many of these rural youth had no access to higher education. So that means they had no way up outside this youth mobilization scheme. So their social battles were much more complicated than what we see as the colonized trying to achieve their rights and legitimacy. I think what makes this history of colonized subjects volunteering for the Japanese military so counterintuitive or so unexpected is that we would expect more anti-imperial resistance or anti-colonial resistance, right? So I'm curious how these volunteers are remembered in local histories. Are, are they seen as collaborating with the state? or Is there attempts to write these people out of history? Or what, what exactly is going on? Yeah, that's another complicated question, though. In Korea, they tend to be seen as collaborators, especially if they ended up serving in the army or the navy. But those who climbed up the ladder of youth mobilization and they became village officials or provincial officials, they remained in their positions, especially in South Korea, and they keep low profile in the post-war chaos. So the reputation of these people is very complicated. There is no straightforward way of categorizing their post-colonial reputation. But in Taiwan, their reputation or their status changed over time. But generally speaking, they were remobilized by the Guomindang and some refused to cooperate with the Guomindang regime. Others were absorbed into Guomindang's youth mobilization scheme again. But generally speaking, now after the democratization of Taiwan, they were much more willing to talk about their experience in the Japanese colonial period. And they tend to depict the colonial training in a much more rosy picture. Which I think is is almost typical it of a, a lot of the colonial legacies. In comparing the legacy of colonialism in Korea and Taiwan, that's often the case where the period of Japanese imperialism is remembered much differently in the two places. In Taiwan, it, often it is more rosy. Yeah, but that's that's exactly why I find it very interesting to find a pattern even between and a commonality even between Taiwan and Korea. And when I looked for personal stories and I I was looking for someone to interview, and it was very difficult, obviously, in Korea to find someone who is willing to talk about their experience within Japanese mobilization. But when I talked to them, their stories had a lot in common with the stories I, I heard in Taiwan as well. I can imagine why it would have been difficult to find people. Is it is it because this history, not that it's not well known, but maybe it's an uncomfortable history that people in Korea don't want to remember? Well, it is a sensitive topic in Korea. And I think there is a generational difference as well. And those who grew up in the colonial period, usually they, they remain silent because of the fear of being labeled as Japanese collaborators. But at the same time, they just didn't have an outlet to talk about it. And the the new rise of right-wingers in South Korea or very extreme nationalism really made it uncomfortable for them to speak up.
speaking of the post-war ramifications of this history, I understand your more recent research is looking at the politics of Koreans in post-war Japan, particularly those from North Korea. So could you tell us more about that project? Sure. So the Korean people, now we call them Dainichi Koreans, but most of them, more than 90% of them came from the southern part of Korea. But right after liberation in 1945, most of them, again, more than 90% of them, pledged allegiance to or at least felt sympathetic to the North Korean regime. So there is a very complicated history of early post-war Korean diaspora remaining in Japan under an American occupation. But uh, with my collaborator, who herself is from this organization, Chonryon or Chosen Soden in Japanese, uh, we are doing a lot of oral interviews to think about the development of this community rather than political fights with the Japanese government. And um, yeah, this is trying to understand why they are continuing to be North Korean overseas nationals and how their identity, not necessarily as North Korean, but as Chongyang Koreans developed or shifted through various North Korean events or the internal politics In the news, whenever we hear about relations between North Korea and Japan, one of the things that comes up is this this issue about North Korea kidnapping Japanese citizens and taking them back to North Korea. And so we get the idea that the relationship between North Korea and Japan is very fraught. But in fact, going back earlier in the post-war period, in many ways, the relationship between North Korea and Japan was much better between that of Japan and South Korea, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. And especially the Japanese Communist Party had a strong connection with both leftist Sainichi Koreans and North Korea. And even in the 1960s, when the Chosen Soden was already established in 1955, and they already decided not to interfere in the Japanese politics, but to just to follow North Korean directives. People, for example, students in radical movements in the 1960s thought about North Korea as an ideal place as well. So North Korea was a discursive symbol for them, along with Maoist China back then. So the image of North Korea was totally different in the 1960s than now. And there was even these ships going back and forth, repatriating people from Japan to North Korea and vice versa, right? Yeah, so that project of repatriation started in 1959. So that was a huge movement. And many Koreans who were living in very dire poverty in post-war Japan, many of them were attracted to the idea of going back to their homeland Tessa Morris Suzuki called it exodus to North Korea. And from from today's point of view, it looks very abusive to bring Zainichi people to North Korea and which would become a starving, you know, poor, oppressive regime eventually. But back then, it, it was a very understandable choice, even for Japanese people. You mentioned there, there's a lot of sympathy for communism, especially amongst the, the leftist elites in Japan and the JCP itself. Yeah. 
But I wonder when they looked at, over across the South Korea and they saw the Park Chung Hee yeah. regime, did they see this as just kind of an ally of the U.S. And, and they see that the Japanese government is now getting embroiled in another war in Asia with the Korean War? Mm-hmm. How did geopolitics impact these views of the two Koreas? So Yoshida Shigeru considered the Korean War as a godsend opportunity for economic recovery. And that really symbolizes, from Zainichi's point of view, it, that really symbolizes the insensitivity of a post-imperial Japan. For Korean diaspora in Japan, the Korean War was, and the division of the peninsula was the biggest tragedy ever. And Yoshida Shigeru, ignoring all these sentiments, just focusing on Japan's economic recovery through the Korean War was in and of itself a crime from their point of view. So that disappointment in post-war Japan really drove leftist Koreans to the North Korean regime and consider themselves as North Korean nationals instead of the ethnic minority within Japan. And then, I mean, one of the, the really sad things is uh, then after the war, because the, the way that the Korean War happens and you get these two regimes on the peninsula, all of these Koreans who are forced to migrate to Japan during the war are effectively rendered stateless, aren't they? Yes, and they became completely stateless after the San Francisco Treaty in 1952. The division of the Korean Peninsula should be considered more seriously within political history of Japan. And I'm trying to bring that division into the sphere of Japanese post-war period. And there is this artificial ignorance or artificial negligence of that fact of the division and the fact of Japanese empire in a post-war period. And that that's something uh, I'm working on. This is a new project for me. And I'm trying to figure out how to fit this division in post-Japan's own political history of post-war. And so what are ties now? We were talking before about how there was this very friendly relationship between North Korea and Japan. When did that start to change and what is the situation now? Well, the situation now is quite obvious to everyone, right? It's it's very antagonistic. The Abe regime doesn't want to engage, but the Chosen Soden members were excited to see this new reconciliation between Kim Jong-un and the U.S., there was a long peaceful coexistence in the world of Sonia Dian after 1955 until probably the mid-1990s when North Korea launched missiles over the Sea of Japan. And that really changed the public understanding or public feelings of North Korea and many Korean students in going to Korean schools in Japan were attacked by ordinary people on the street or on the train. And again, the abductee issue, as you said, came out in 2002, if I remember correctly. And that really changed, that actually shocked many of Chosen Soden and Chongyeon people as well. And many Japanese people turned antagonistic toward everything North Korea. And North Korea became seriously villain in the public eyes. As a result of this, and people affiliated with North Korea living in Japan today, we started to get 
targeted in some cases with violence and other types of discrimination. There was even attempts by the government, if I'm not mistaken, to take away the accreditation of North Korean schools. Oh, yeah. Yes, that has been going on for a long time. They got rid of the small subsidy to support Korean schools. And by many means that the Japanese people don't know, there is the bullying, basically, against Korean schools by small regulations. And for example, if Korean or Zainichi businessmen want to donate to Korean schools, those business owners might be investigated by the Internal Revenue Services equivalent in Japan. So, yes, there is like visible and invisible discriminations against the Zainichi people and especially Chosen Soden organization in general. By studying this history of, of these close ties between Japan and Korea, is this a way that we might be able to reconcile the current tensions between the two countries? I don't, honestly, I don't think so. What I'm trying to do through the Chongyang community, obviously, I I, I think the Chongyang community's history is worth telling and worth understanding. But at the same time, it opens up a door for us to see Japanese post-war politics, which strangely looks very isolated other than its tie with the United States. And there was a possibility that Japan would have developed a self-identity as heterogeneous nation rather than homogeneous nation. And there is this idea of homogeneous nation developed in post-war period has a lot to do with Zainichi people's self-isolation from Japanese politics per se. So I want to just question whether this this development of homogeneous nation was so natural as we understand it now. I mean, the idea of a homogenous nation developing in post-war period was so natural or not. I think it was in Fujitani's work where he points out too that the whole idea of homogeneity in the post-war conveniently forgets or writes out the fact that Japan had a pan-Asian empire prior to 1945. Yeah, and we we kind of take it for granted that this shift in post-war period was done so quickly and naturally, but no, it wasn't. And this was not a natural course of development at all. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.